I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Judges, chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, it's on page 200. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. Father, we thank You for uh, this divine truth. We acknowledge that left to ourselves, we would have no understanding. We might understand things, some things cognitively about the grammar and so forth, but to truly see the risen Christ, to see our need for Him, to see the sin within our hearts exposed, we need the work of Your Holy Spirit. So may we not be uh, a presumptive people, but people who bow in humility before You, acknowledging uh, the work of your divine sovereign grace in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They fought Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Zephyr. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Zephyr and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. 
And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or to Anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Aksib, or of Helba, or of Aphik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ijalon, and in Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, this book of Judges can be a very troubling book to read. There are certainly some problem areas in this first chapter that we'll talk a little bit about this morning. But this chapter in and of itself is really not that bad. If you were to go through and read the next 20 chapters, however, you would see that the book gets progressively worse. If you grew up in the church, you probably remember as a child first reading the book of Judges and thinking to yourself, wow. This is amazing. So much violence. So much bloodshed. My parents may not even let me watch a PG-13 movie, but it's the Bible, so what are they going to (laughs) say? But as you grow into adulthood, you read the book of Judges, and you think to yourself, this is disturbing. This is extremely troubling. What am I to make of all of these graphic historical accounts? A king who is disemboweled, a concubine who is dismembered, a man who is supposed to be the leader of God's people engaged in illicit affairs driven by his insatiable lust. And not only do you have questionable characters, but you have the people of God who are under his direct command told to kill and drive out the occupants of the land of Canaan, to destroy anything that might be left behind. 
Is this God-ordained genocide? The destruction of entire cultures? But we don't have the option of just rejecting the book because there are things about it that might make us uncomfortable. We can't allow our emotions to be that which dictates what we accept as true or what we reject as false. It's God's Word. And therefore, as His Word, it has the same attributes as the rest of Scripture. It's a Word that is God-breathed, that is authoritative, a Word that has been timelessly preserved for us in God's good providence, a Word that is forever relevant, a Word that is even contemporary to our own needs and struggles in the Christian life. Now, when approaching the book of Judges, it's helpful, I think, to see the book as theological narrative. And by that, I simply mean these are historical accounts. These are true events that happened in time and space in history beginning around 1300 B.C. But it's not just history recorded for history's sake. It is historical information that is meant to be interpreted. Narratives that are meant to reveal to us very significant and crucial truths about the nature of the Lord and His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His wrath, His patience. We learn a great deal about who the Lord is from the things that He says and from the way that He acts. Now, just as you might need to put on your glasses to read the Sunday paper or put them on to drive or to put them on to see anything with clarity in this life, We need the lenses of the nature of God and the finished work of the Lord Jesus in order to make sense of this book of Judges. Because it is a book that is not primarily about the faulty men and women that we encounter in this book, but it is primarily a book about the covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord who relentlessly pursues His people and who faithfully works in history. And that leads us to the first point that I want to make this morning from the text. And that is that God is the God of history. Judges is a book that fits in this transitional period. And it's a book that looks back to God's faithfulness. And it's a book that looks forward to His fulfillment. Now in looking back, the people of God can recall the faithfulness of the Lord and the way in which He has provided leaders at critical times in their history. God spoke to Moses from that unburning bush in Exodus chapter 3 at that point in history in which he was commissioned to act as the leader, bringing them out of captivity in the land of Egypt. And then at the book of Joshua, the Lord clearly commissions Joshua to take that mantle of leadership from Moses upon himself. But they can also look back and see the way in which the Lord has made good on his covenant promises. Promises that were given to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, where he was told that this land in which he is standing would be the possession of his descendants. Covenant promises that are coming to fulfillment now, in the present, as the Lord remains active among his people. The Lord has preserved his people. He has guided his people. He has brought them to this precise moment at this exact time. Do you see how important it is for God's people to remember His faithfulness, to live out of the reality that He is the sovereign Lord of history? But just as Judges is a book that looks back, it is also a book that looks ahead in hopeful anticipation. This time period of the Judges is an extremely rocky time in Israel's history. 
But they are not meant to be content to simply live in the midst of that instability. They are meant to look ahead to a time of peace and permanence that will one day be ushered in by the great king. You see, the book of Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. The book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. The book of Judges, as we just read, we saw begins with the death of Joshua. And if you were to go on and read the book of 1 Kings, you would read of the death of the beloved King David. Yet even though these God-appointed leaders die, God's kingdom does not collapse. Even when those who are most useful in service to the Lord leave this earth, the kingdom of God continues because our help and our hope is not in some earthly leader or some finite ruler, but our help is in the name of the Lord. Now, one of the reasons why the children of Israel struggle so frequently and struggle so intensely throughout the book of Judges is because they are a people meant to be under authority. And yet it is that authority that they fight against over and again. And we too, as much as we don't like authority, as much as we are told by the world around us that we should resist authority, we are meant to have a leader over us. We are meant to have someone, with a capital S, to rule over us. We simply cannot rule ourselves, as much as we might like to think that we can. Ken Myers, in his audio journal, he says, You know, the real enemy that we face in modern society is not death, but the real enemy that we face is not being in control. You've seen those bumper stickers that say, Question authority. Myers says, I wonder what would happen if you put submit to legitimate authority. You would probably get investigated by Homeland Security. You see, the book of Judges ends driving us to see our need for a kingly ruler. It ends with these words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We need a king. And if any book in the Old Testament creates a longing for the Lord Jesus and his return, it is this book. Just as they lived in a time period between promise and fulfillment of that earthly king, So we, as the Lord's redeemed people, live in this period between the ascension and the return of our great King, the Lord Jesus. So the book of Judges helps us to remember that our King will return in fullness at the end of the age. And in the meantime, our sovereign Lord knows exactly what He is doing. And so whether we go through turbulent times as a people just as the nation as a whole often went through these times of great oppression, the Lord is purposefully ruling. Or whether it's just going through the daily grind of life, sort of the minutia and the mundane conflicts day in, day out in our relationships and disappointments and failures, God is deeply involved. He is sovereignly at work in the lives of every one of His covenant people, preserving, disciplining, ruling over all things for our good and for His glory. And so how important it is that we remember that our God is the God of history and He knows exactly what He is doing. Our second point this morning is this. For all the troubles that are going to come later in this book of Judges, Judges is a book that starts off well. It's a book that starts off relatively well. In the first two verses, we read that the people come and inquire of the Lord. 
It seems as though this legacy of Joshua and his godly example is being passed on to the next generation. They come to the Lord and they ask, who shall go before us? Who shall lead us? They understand that they need someone to lead them. They understand that they belong to the Lord. They understand that they have the privilege, the right and the prerogative of going to the Lord and inquiring of Him. And so they are remembering, you see. They are remembering God's gracious covenant. They are remembering His faithful direction in providing leaders for them in the past. And they are anticipating someone else to continue to provide that leadership for them. And as God replies, He says that it is the tribe of Judah who is to take the lead. And further, God says that He will be with His people. We might wonder why the tribe of Judah, of all the tribes, why are they the ones who are to take the lead? Well, Judah is that kingly tribe. It was back in the book of Genesis chapter 49. As Jacob is preparing to die and he is offering those prophetic words of blessing upon each of his sons. It's around verses 8 through 10 that Judah is prophesied as the one who will be exalted. Judah is the one who shall be given that position of rule and authority. And now, all of these years later, that prophecy that was offered is now beginning to come to fulfillment. Judah is to take the lead. He is to pave the way. But Judah, you see, will not see its full glory of its regal position until the reign of David, and ultimately not until the person and work of Christ. But it is here in the book of Judges that Judah begins to forge that kingly path. Where else do we see positive signs in these early verses? Notice in verse 3 that Judah and Simeon work together and go out to fight the enemies of the Lord. Now, practically, this just seems to make sense. Because if you look in the back of your Bible and you see the little different colored maps of where all of the different allotted tribal areas lie, Simeon is right there in the middle of Judah's allotment. And so it makes sense that they work together. But I think what we're meant to see from the beginning of this book is the importance of national unity. It's a unity, like everything else in the book of Judges, that starts off well and progressively deteriorates as we go through the book. And so here, Judah and Simeon work together, but toward the end of the book, the nation is so scattered, not just geographically, but scattered religiously, that civil war erupts among them. Nonetheless, the positive signs continue in these early verses, in verses 4 through 10. We read that Judah experiences a series of great victories, and there is this decisive defeat against the Canaanites and the Perizzites. The king is captured, and we read of the first act of graphic brutality, which is just a taste of what's to come, as the king has his thumbs and his big toes cut off. This might seem like an odd punishment. Certainly this is a way to humiliate the king that they have conquered, but it's also a way to ensure that this king can't run off You're not going to get very far without your big toes. And it's a way to ensure that the king could never pick up a sword against you. And notice that the conquered king, though he does not bow in humility before the covenant Lord, but he uses the generic name for God, bowing in humility, at least acknowledging that what has come to him is an act of divine retribution for his own cruelty against others. And so this king, Adonibezek, is mutilated, and then we read in verse 7 that he dies. So again, hopeful signs. The Lord's direction is sought, enemies are defeated, 
rival kings are disposed of, all seems to be going well. And we go on to read of further victory in verses 11 through 15 in another mini-narrative. Caleb, who is, as you remember, from the tribe of Judah, he is singled out. And he offers his daughter as a dowry to anyone who will go forth and achieve victory. This is the same account that is recorded in Joshua chapter 15. And you might remember Caleb. He's one of those two men, along with Joshua, who trusted in the Lord when they came to the edge of the land of Canaan and sent those spies into the land. He was only one of two who came back and said, we can defeat these enemies of the Lord. It was the other ten, of course, who had influence upon the nation of Israel as a whole, and it led to the 40 years of wilderness wandering as punishment. But Caleb's life is preserved. We read of this man, Othniel, who is also from the tribe of Judah, who later, in chapter 3, becomes the first judge. And so he achieves victory, and he has given Caleb's daughter, Oxa, as a wife. Now here we come across the first woman who is mentioned in the book of Judges. Now there are many other women to follow, But just like the men, some are good, some are bad. Some assume positions of leadership, while others are treated in a quite brutal manner. And it really depends upon the context as how we are to think about the different women who are mentioned and the roles that they play in this book. Now, obviously, ancient Israel is a patriarchal society. And there have been a number of women's studies from this book of Judges attempting to show the valor of women and the foolishness of men. And certainly that's an aspect of what's going on. So here is Aksa, who receives along with her husband this choice piece of land. Notice it's a piece of land that she takes the initiative to receive. And then she goes one step further in taking the opportunity to negotiate for the water rights of the land, something that neither her father nor her husband had considered. And so perhaps we're meant to see the nobility of this woman. Perhaps we're meant also to see seeds of weakness beginning to be sown in the lives of the men. But what we have, at the least I think, is a husband and a wife from the same nation, from the same royal tribe being united in marriage. Marriage which is to be a reflection of God's covenant with His people. This is why marriage is to happen only within the covenant community. Now later on in the book... Of Judges, the Israelites intermarry with the surrounding people, something that from Deuteronomy chapter 7 they were explicitly told not to do. And then there's that final judge, you remember Samson, who is the worst example of them all in his promiscuous behavior. The key thing to keep in mind here in these early verses as we think about the positive way that the book starts is that Yahweh, the Lord, is with Judah. Verse 2. I have given the land into the hand of Judah. Verse 4, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into the hand of Judah. Verse 19, the Lord is with them and they achieve victory. They are recipients of his favor and any victory that they achieve is the result of his divine intervention. So again, the way that the book of Judges opens, it's full of optimism, hope, and promise. However, this expectation is not realized But a dark shadow quickly falls upon the nation. That brings us to our third point, and that is that things begin to unravel as we experience this progressive deterioration that starts in the second half of verse 19. Look there again. Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
And the text here, I think it begs us to ask the question, why did they fail to achieve decisive victory? Is it the fact that these chariots of iron were just a special type of chariot that they had never encountered before and didn't really know how to defeat? Is it just that this people group didn't want to die as much as perhaps the others they conquered were okay with dying? What is going on? Clearly, the iron chariots are no match to the Lord. Weakness does not lie with him. One anonymous Greek author wrote, They were unable, not because of powerlessness, but because of laziness. Now, we don't read that in the immediate context, but certainly this is the picture that emerges as we go through the book of Judges. We'll see this more in a moment, but the inherent problem of Israel is covenant unfaithfulness. We begin to encounter more problems in verses 20 and 21. Here, the people of Benjamin did not, we read, did not drive out the Jebusites. And the author makes the point that this is why they continue to live in Jerusalem to this day. That is, hundreds of years later, as he's writing this book, we still are reaping the failed consequences of their actions. And so there's this clear contrast between the tribe of Judah, who provides leadership and who achieves victory, and then there's Benjamin, who fails miserably. And this is a contrast between these two tribes that, again, it develops as the book unfolds. But why does the author do that? Why does he make this clear contrast between the two tribes? Remember, there's theological reasons for that. And the reason is this. The book of Judges was written early on in the establishment of the monarchy. Some are going to continue to be extremely loyal to Saul and to his offspring because he was the first king that the nation had ever had. And they will see David as an illegitimate leader. But as we see this contrast between Benjamin, the Saul the tribe of Saul, and Judah, the tribe of David, it becomes clear which king the Lord would have his people to follow. It's clear which tribe we should expect the royal king to come from. And now in verses 22 through 36, the the focus of attention shifts to the tribes in the north. We read in verse 22 that the Lord is with the house of Joseph, that is the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And if the Lord is with them, well, what would we expect? We would expect the same outcome that we read in verse 4, victory. But here we come across another mini-narrative that exposes the half-hearted nature of the house of Joseph. You see, with Judah, there was trust in the Lord and there is decisive victory. They take the battle to Adoni Bezek. As he flees, they pursue him. They seize him. They mutilate him. They take him to Jerusalem and he dies. Decisive action, right? Decisive action within the parameters of obedience to the Lord. But here with Joseph, we get the picture of human strategy rather than absolute trust of the Lord. Here are some spies who were sent to scout out the city of Luz and look for weaknesses. They see a man coming from the city They approach him and they speak with him and they persuade him to make an agreement with them, literally to make a covenant with them. And he agrees to help them by betraying his own people. And so they release him. But because of the covenant agreement that they made with him, he goes off with his family and builds another city. And notice that he gives that city the same name of the city that they just destroyed. 
You've got to imagine, what kind of a guy is going to betray his own people and then go off and make a city and give it the same name? Its name is Luz. And we read in verse 26, this is its name to this day. In other words, even today we are still struggling with the consequences of that failure. But this man who acts as an informer, he's not repentant. He doesn't trust in the Lord. He's not engrafted into the covenant community like Rahab was when she helped the spies back in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. But he survives along with his false worship because of this covenant that was made in foolishness with him. And again, Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes into play. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Commentator Barry Webb says, in the end, the city really isn't destroyed, it's just moved. And we continue to encounter problems in the northern tribes in verses 27 and following. Note that there's this progression of failure that we read here. Verse 27, Manasseh does not drive out the inhabitants of all these different villages where Judah earlier succeeded in driving them all out, devoting them to complete destruction, but not now. Verse 28, we read that the Canaanites were put into forced labor. Now, in this context of warfare, there's a lot that can be said. I think for our purposes this morning, it's sufficient to note that the children of Israel were appointed to act as God's agents of judgment against people who were at enmity with the Lord because of their false worship. And so as agents of divine retribution, they were not to make peace with these different inhabitants. But perhaps the reasoning went like this. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Shouldn't we at least profit or benefit in some way from them? Shouldn't we be fiscally driven in our, decisive make, in our decision making? Isn't my own reasoning a better arbiter of truth rather than absolute obedience to the word of the Lord? Then we get to verse 29. Ephraim fails and now the Canaanites are living among them. Coexistence and tolerance. Verse 30, Zebulun fails to drive them out, and they live among them. Verses 31 and 32, Asher did not drive them out, and now the tables have turned. Instead of the Canaanites living among the people of God, now it's the people of God living among the Canaanites. Verse 31, Naphtali as well lives among the Canaanites. And then by the time we get to verse 34, notice here that it's actually the tribe of Dan that is pushed back into the hill country. And all of this strategic land along the coastal plains, which would include important ports for trade, strategic mountainside locations for defenses, fertile valleys, all of the choice land is held by the enemies of the Lord. Now the cities that are listed in verse 35 are some 22 miles inland from the coast. And so we read just how far back, you see, from the coastal plains, the people of the Lord have been pushed. And so first, the Israelites allow the Canaanites to survive at a distance. Then the Canaanites live among the Israelites. Then it's the Israelites living among the Canaanites. And finally, it's the Israelites who are being pushed back into the hill country. Do you see the progressive nature of compromise and accommodation? We started off so well, didn't we? The expectations were high, and rightly so. They are the covenant people of the living God. They have seen Him do miraculous things to deliver them. They are called to faithfulness. They are called to obedience. They are called to wholehearted worship of the Lord. But now they are simply living among the enemies of God. 
And lastly, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, there is this evaluation and this indictment against the people of Israel. In Numbers chapter 33, at the end of that chapter, in the last two verses, we read, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And now here in Judges chapter 2, this messenger of the Lord comes. And notice first, he reminds the people of the grace and mercy of the Lord. Verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you. But that's not all. Verse 2, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. And now, because you have disobeyed, they will become barbs and thorns in your side and a snare to you. You see, what we're meant to see here is we're meant to see this tension that's developing in the book. The Lord has bound himself in covenant promise to his people, never to leave them, never to forsake them. And yet they have failed. They have broken the covenant by turning from the Lord and making covenant agreements with other people, the inhabitants of the land. And note here that it's not about failure in military excursions. It's not as though they just went out into the land and didn't do a very good job fighting. It's about covenant faithfulness. It's about failure to worship the Lord. They're not charged with failing to drive the people out per se, but they're charged with a failure to keep the covenant. And instead, they make it a covenant with those who are in the land. And you see, we're meant to feel this tension here in the text. God is holy and just and righteous And he cannot tolerate evil. He cannot have wickedness, sin, and rebellion in his presence. On the other hand, God is a loving and faithful and good God. And he will not let his people go because of his commitment to them. And it's here that we see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one, you see, who resolves this tension between the holiness of the Lord and the defilement of the people. And it's ultimately in the cross of Christ in which the only eternal Son of God received the wrath that was due to us, poured out upon Him. God's justice was satisfied. And now there is loving faithfulness as we are made recipients of His grace and forgiveness. And so the only way to resolve this tension that we read here, that we see developed throughout the book is to see it resolved ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why the Lord God is the principal character in this book. This is why the hero of the book is not the judges themselves, but the hero in the book is the, is the Lord God, prevailing in mercy. And so when you read through this book of Judges, and when you ask yourself, what in the world is God doing? When you look at trials in your own life, And you find yourself asking the same question, what in the world is God doing? We really ought to be asking, why would he continue to keep a people who are so filled with wickedness, rebellion, and half-hearted worship? Why would he continue to keep me in spite of my many failures? So what are some applications that we can draw from God's word this morning? 
I'm sure there's a number of them that just, just a few. God is a God of mercy and grace. As a God of mercy and grace, our response to him should be one of absolute wonder and awe and humility and worship. As you go through these chapters, they are meant to be tedious. You're meant to get frustrated with the people who fail again and again and again. And if our logic prevailed, if our temperament were put to the test, we would cast them aside and be done with them. But what you are meant to see more than the failures of the people is the faithfulness of the Lord. He is a God of mercy and long-suffering kindness who will continually work among his people despite constant resistance to his purposes. There is one hero and it is the Lord God. You see, here's how foolish we are. God shows us mercy and we respond in sin. God shows us grace, and we respond in self-centered stupidity. He is the God of relentless grace, who pursues a people who don't deserve it, who don't even seek it, who don't even appreciate it when they've been saved. But thankfully, His grace will, will prevail even over the stupidest of people. We are meant to respond in absolute awe and wonder that he would be so gracious, so merciful to me. And the second application here, I think, is simply this. The Lord wants lordship and authority over every aspect of our lives. Someone has said, small sins of omission quickly turn into large sins of commission. In other words, little areas of neglect in your life whether it's making peace with indwelling sin, convincing yourself that you're really not that bad, maybe telling yourself that you deserve a little bit of indulgence because no one knows how hard your life is. What starts as a seemingly small area of failing to do what the Lord calls us to do very quickly turns into wholehearted rebellion against Him. So here is Israel, you see, trying to live with one foot in the world around them and one foot in the kingdom of God. And so they don't completely reject the world, but neither do they completely accept God's lordship over them. They want part of their lives kept to themselves. But God wants all of your life. There is no half-hearted, partial obedience. God is a God of grace, yes, but we are not to be a presumptive people. He is a God of grace, but it is that same grace that demands holiness of life from his people. As we read in Romans chapter 2, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So you see, partial obedience very quickly leads to reckless disobedience. Israel's failure to obey was based upon perhaps what they thought were legitimate reasons. They are too strong. They have iron chariots. There are too many of them. They are tenacious. They just don't want to die. Peace and coexistence just seems to make more sense. You don't have any idea how much work it's going to be. But God says those are flimsy excuses. And there might be all kinds of things in our own lives we are convinced that we're unable to do, but perhaps it's just a refusal to bow to His Lordship. 
And so do you see in your own life a need for His grace? And is there a life of grateful obedience as a result? Do you see the heinous nature of your sin which nailed our Savior to the cross? The question, I think, is not so much, have you made peace with sin? But if you are like the Israelites at all, which I'm afraid we, we are, where have I made peace with sin? Where have I dismissed it as something minor and insignificant? Where have I perhaps even taken that sin and labeled it as something virtuous instead? You see, God is faithful despite of our disobedience, despite our disobedience, and that's comforting. But God, in that same grace, insists upon the removal of self-deception and half-hearted obedience, and He insists upon a people who are growing in passionate pursuit of holiness. And one final application is this. Remember, disobedience is essentially a failure to remember who He is and what He has done to redeem you. And it's instead to think too highly or too frequently of ourselves. See, when you grumble and complain about your circumstances, you're failing to remember that He is the Lord of history. And He has you exactly where He wants you to be at the exact precise time in which He has you. When you doubt His purposes, you are failing to remember. When you question His goodness and when you question His love, you are failing to remember. As we remember what He has done for His people throughout the ages, as we remember what He has done to secure our redemption, as we remember what He has done even to faithfully bring us here this day, our minds are put at ease. Our hearts are filled with trust. Our disposition changes from restlessness to resting in Him. Perhaps there would be wisdom in your life even to take time this afternoon and to write down the things that the Lord has done in His faithfulness in your own life so that you might remember what He has done for you and how kind and gracious He has been to you. And as we remember who He is, we will serve Him wholeheartedly and joyfully all the days that He has given to us. So may we be a people who actively remember who actively remember that we have been chosen to be the treasured possession of the Lord, not because of anything within us, but because He has chosen to set His love upon us. The Lord loves you because He loves you. And He is keeping the oath of His covenant promise. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of His Word and to write it upon our hearts.